0: Well, good evening, everyone. It's really fantastic to see all of you tonight. As Barclay said, my name is Tim. I'm part of the leadership team here at Holywell Church. And it's a real great privilege to bring God's word to you, whether you are a regular here amongst us this evening, whether you're a visitor, whether you're here in person or tuning in online. It's really a wonderful privilege and a pleasure to bring the word of God to you all. And we're going to be spending our evening together in Psalm 63. And so if you've got a Bible, please turn to Psalm 63. Um, and if you've got one of those handouts as well, there's an outline to give you an idea of where we're going to be going this evening, and it's also got the page numbers on there as well to help you. Psalm 63. As you're finding your place, let me just give you a couple of words of introduction. It's a psalm where David is in the desert and he's in great danger. There were two occasions in which when this was the case for him. The first time was when he was a young man and a soldier and he was running away from King Saul. And you can see that in 1 Samuel. And the second time was when he was the king, and when he was running away from a rebellion led by his own son, Absalom. You can find that in 2 Samuel. And it's the second one in which this psalm refers to. And we know this because it tells us in verse 11 of the psalm that at this time David was the king. Just imagine for a moment, your own son... He's won the hearts of all the people and he's turned them all against you. And now he's taken you off your throne and you're having to run away out of your city. And you've been thrown out of your palace and you've had to flee into the desert in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. You're hungry, you're thirsty and you're in incredible danger. So much danger that you might well even lose your own life. How does David respond to this situation, a situation of intense anxiety, worry, desperation. Maybe tonight you, or perhaps someone you know, is going through an intense period of anxiety and worry. What can we learn tonight from David's response to his situation as New Testament Christians following the Lord Jesus this evening? Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Verse 1. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With sinning lips, my lips will praise you. On my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is God's word to us this evening. Let's pray together before we look at it together. Dear Father God, we thank you so much that we have your word. We thank you, Lord God, for this psalm and what it meant to David to write it. And thank you, Lord God, that we can now hear you speak through Psalm 63. Please, Lord God, we pray, would you speak into our lives, whatever our circumstances, whatever our situation, whether we know you or not, we pray, Lord God, Psalm 63, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, would do wonderful, marvellous things beyond what we could possibly imagine tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Psalm 63, it begins with David saying, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? Where you longed for nothing more than a drink on a really, really hot and dry day? Over recent years, I've really got into biographies and recollections. Let me just share a true story of a young man, and he got caught in no man's land during the First World War. He was caught in a massive bunker. His army was on one side, and the enemy army was on the other side. And he was damaged in both legs. He could not walk. And for three days, he was lying in this massive hole in the ground. And this is what he said. For the first day, the pain in my legs was overwhelming. I couldn't think of anything except for the pain in my legs. But as I went through the first night and into the second day, that changed. By the second day, I had almost forgotten the pain in my legs. I was so thirsty. I was longing for a drink. I would have done anything. I would have given my life just to put a little bit of water on my lips. I longed for it and I prayed for it to rain. I put my head into the dirt to try to suck up just a little bit of moisture. I was so thirsty. And you know, by the third day, I think I would have died. But the heavens opened and it began to rain. And there was nothing more wonderful than that. I had water again. My friends, when David writes this psalm, Psalm 63, he knows what it is to be truly proper thirsting. He's in the desert, we can see that at the top of the psalm. And his lips, they are parched, you can imagine, his throat is burning, his tongue is swollen, he is longing for something to drink. But you know, as you read through this psalm, what becomes very clear is that there's something that he wants more than physical water. Yes, physical water is good and it's important, but there's something inside him that is crying out and longing for something more than that. Can you see that in verse 1 of our psalm tonight? Listen to what David says. My soul longs for you. I long for God. I earnestly seek Him. I am in a parched land. I am far from God. And at this moment in time, it seems as though David has lost everything. He's lost his throne, he's lost his palace, he may may even lose his own life, but that doesn't bother him. The thing that concerns him most, the thing that he really longs for, is for God. If only I might come near to God, if only I might taste the cold water of the refreshing presence of God. That's what I long for. Now, I I must confess, I've been in this psalm all week. I've been reading it. I've been praying through it. And it's a wonderful psalm. Take it away and read it for yourself. But I cannot help but think to myself, when was the last time I really longed for God like David does? I cannot help but feel immensely challenged by David's words. When I am going through a time of stress and anxiety and uncertainty and desperation, who do I turn to? Do I turn to the living God the way David does? Do I make people too big and God too small? When was the last time you and I longed for God like this? You know, Psalms, they act a bit like a mirror, don't they? We're supposed to look through the mirror and think... Where is my heart this evening? When was the last time that I could really genuinely say that I really desired God? The greatest thing in my heart was for God. When was the last time that my my heart felt like that? And that's what this psalm is going to do for us tonight. It's going to be a spiritual checkup on us. If we call ourselves Christians here this evening. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, if you don't know God, it's saying... Well, do you realize that you are even thirsty in the first place? And you will carry on being thirsty until you know God for yourself. If you're trying to quench your life with other things that are not God, you'll keep on being thirsty until you find him and know who he really is. I have two points to share with you all tonight from Psalm 63. Two takeaways that I really think could benefit us as Christians and as a church family. Firstly, God is my desire. Verses 1 to 5. And secondly, God is my defense. Verses 6 to 11. They're on the handout if it helps you follow along. Let's look at the first one. God is my desire, verses 1 to 5. In verse 1, David describes his desire, and then in the original language, the Hebrew in verse 1, it says, My soul earnestly seeks Him. My soul longs for God. My soul thirsts for God. And in verse 5, notice, David says that my soul will be satisfied with the riches of food. He's kind of changed the metaphor here. He's now talking about eating instead of drinking, but he's talking about the same thing. He is longing to know God and to be close to God. And he's certain when he does come close to God, he will be satisfied. Look again at verse 1. Take a listen to verse 1. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I first for you. David begins with a wonderful affirmation, you see. Oh God, you are my God. Let's just pause for a moment, shall we? What is a Christian? <coughs> Any of you ever wondered that question for yourself? What is a Christian fundamentally? You might think a Christian is someone who goes to church. Well, I hope that's part of the equation. I'm sure it is. Or you might think a Christian is someone who just tries to live a good life. Well, yeah, I'm sure that's part of it as well. Or you might think a Christian is someone who believes what the Bible says. Well, yes, that is true. All of those things are perfectly true. But what the Bible actually says when it defines a Christian is that a Christian is someone who can genuinely say, Oh God, you are my God. Can you say this this evening? Not that I believe in God, although that is great, but oh God, you are my God. I have a personal relationship with you. You know, the Bible describes it in almost in terms of the most intimate kind of relationships, you see. Like a husband and a wife, or a parent and a little child. A really intimate kind of relationship. Oh God, you are my God. And what David is saying is that even in the desert, where I have seemed to have lost absolutely everything else, I haven't lost God. Here's the great thing about being a Christian, you see. Whatever else goes, you never lose God. You see, life is often a bit about losing things, isn't it? Have you noticed that? Maybe for the older folks amongst us here tonight, have you noticed, the older you get, the more you lose? Your hair, your mobility, your 20-20 vision. You might be sat there thinking, here, no need for you to remind me about that, young chappy. (laughs) But it's not just that, though, is it? We all go through different seasons and stages of life, don't we? And sometimes that means we lose friends. Or for others us here tonight, we lose family members. Life is often about losing things. But do know this. If you are a Christian here tonight, then there is one thing that you can never lose. Whatever your circumstances, whatever you are going through, you can never lose the touch of God on your life. What is a Christian fundamentally? According to Psalm 63, a Christian is someone who knows God. Someone who can genuinely say, Oh God, you are my God. Can you see what David is saying here? Oh God, you are my God. I long for you more and more and more. The more I know you, the more I want to know you. You see, when you get hungry, when you get thirsty... You can satisfy that in your tummy, can't you? You can have some food, you can eat something, and you might feel full up, or you might get sick, or you might get bored. But it's not like that with the Christian life. The thing about God is that the more you have of God, the more you want of Him. The more you come and draw near to God, and you taste and see the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're satisfied, and you realise there's nothing else in this world that can compare. The more you want of Him. You see, the more longing you have, the more you desire the Lord Jesus. And the psalmist is saying, I desire God. Nothing else will satisfy me. Nothing else will take its place during times of great worry and stress and uncertainty. If you're not a Christian here today, we're so happy that you are here. Please may I say something directly to you. As gently as I could possibly can. You are missing out on the purpose of your own existence. God made you and I to know him. That's why he made all of us in this room. Let's try something. I'm not sure if this will work. Let's try something. I'm going to need a bit of audience anticipation if you don't mind. Let me ask you this. What's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, animal to have ever lived? Don't be afraid. Shout out some answers. Blue whale. whale, Fantastic. Good answer. Now, let me ask you an easier question. Where does the blue whale live? It lives in the ocean, lives in the sea. Well done. University town, phenomenal. Okay. (laughs) It lives in the water. That's its element. Now, one of the most tragic things, and I don't know if this has ever happened to a blue whale, but one of the most tragic things... It's seeing a whale that has landed. I think the terminology is beached. A beached whale. So just imagine, I know this is difficult because this is the Midlands, it's not near the, the sea, but just imagine for a second, you are on a beach, take your pick, and what, and you see a, a, a whale that has become beached. What are you going to do? Well, one thing you could do, you could give it some food. You can give it some chips or something. Take your pick. Because you don't want it to starve. You could cover it with tarpaulin because you don't want it to dry out and burn in the sun. Or you could get loads and loads of water, pour buckets of water all over it, because if it dries out, it will die. You can do all of those things, but none of those things is the thing that it really actually needs, is it? The thing that it really needs, it needs to go back in the sea. You've got to pick it up. Well, How do you pick up a blue whale? To be honest, it's probably easy for most of us to pick up the sea than to actually pick up a blue whale. But what you need to do is you need to pick it up and you need to chuck it back in the water. Blue whales were made to live in the ocean. And here is the point. We, you and I in this room, were made to live and to move and to have our being in the ocean, which is God. We were made to know God. We were made to love God. To have a relationship with God and by trying to fill our empty lives with anything other than the Lord Jesus is the equivalent of trying to pour water on a beached whale. Where does the whale need to be? It needs to be back in the sea. Where do you and I need to be tonight? We all need to know the Lord Jesus. And David is saying, that is what I desire in all of my life including times of worry and anxiety, uncertainty. I long for God. The original Hebrew here, actually, it really says this. Early in the morning. The first thing that I think about when I wake up in the morning. Let's have some confession time, shall we? What's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Shall I tell you what's the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning? coffee. It is a fantastic word. And then I want to meet God in the Bible. But do you see what David is getting at here? Do you see? He longs nothing more than to know and to be close in the intimate presence of God. But that's all well and good. But what kind of God is he longing for? Yes, it's all well and good to say, I long for God, I desire God in times of great anxiety and stress, but what kind of God am I wanting to be close to? Well, let's continue with our verses. Let's have a look down at verse 2. David says this, I have seen you, God, in the sanctuary, and beheld your power and your glory. If you're taking notes on your handout, then here are some of the things that, uh, about God. That we see in this psalm. We see God's power and we see God's glory. You see, God is not a tiny prophetic little God. You know, sometimes we think of God as a kind of a massive father Christmas. You know, someone who is just there, but appears from time to time and just does nice things for us. That is not the God that David is describing, is he? God is not a tiny prophetic little God. No, he is Yahweh. He is majestic. He is glorious. And he's overwhelming. God is, he's the type, kind of God that takes your breath away. But more than that, verse three, he is also a God of love. Look down, listen to verse three. David says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. You see, if God was just powerful, then he would be terrifying. Sure, we can admire him from a distance, but we can never trust him with our lives and love him, could we? But God is not just powerful. He is also loving, gentle, and lowly. The word loving here in verse 3 literally means loving kindness, tenderness, gentleness. You know, the most wonderful thing about God is that God actually comes to us and enters into a relationship with us at the most amazing cost. God sends his own son, the one that we've been singing about this evening, into our world so that we can have a relationship with God. This great majestic God who made those stars, all those hundred billion stars and all the Milky Way, the same God comes to save us. The word love, verse 3, it carries a sense of stooping and reaching and rescuing. And the Christian message is just that, you see. If you're making notes about what God is like, God is great. He is powerful and he is glorious. But he is also full of love. Let me put it this way, if I may. Let Let me put it this way. God is maximally alive in all that he is. God is maximum power, maximum glory, maximum love. How awesome and wonderful is that? You see, it's not that God is somehow just a better or bigger version of us, a bit more loving and a bit more powerful than the most powerful human you can ever imagine. No, God, he is in a total league of his own. God, he is maximally alive in all of his character, without any compromise. And it's David's meditation on the doctrine, the attributes, the character of God that helps him through his anxiety. That's his antidote. How awesome is our God? Can you see what David is doing in this song? Can you see what's helping him through his desperation? He is contemplating and chewing over and meditating on God, on who he is in all of his being. He is thinking about God in all of his character. And as he thinks about God, it helps him make a series of decisions. Can you see what he does in verses three, four and five? They all kind of begin with a, this is what I will do. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you for as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You know, lifting up your hands, sometimes people do it when praising God as a kind of act of worship. And and they can't stop it. I mean, I even do it myself sometimes. I've not been thrown out of any church yet. But that's what people do sometimes. But I think what's going on here is David is coming to God, lifting up his hands because he's coming to God with empty hands. That's what sometimes people do. They they lift up their hands to God because they're saying, I can't come with anything else. In my time of worry, in my time of uncertainty and stress and anxiety, I'm just coming to the Lord Jesus, lifting up my hands because that's all I can do. I need him. Every hour, every day. I need you. Lord God, every hour I need you. That's what lifting up hands really needs and that's what David is doing here because he can't go anywhere else he's in the desert room he's in the wilderness he's in the middle of nowhere all he can do is lift up his hands to the Lord God because he has nothing else and so what do we do when we are afraid what do we do when we are in trouble what do we do when life just escapes us we lift up our hands to God And what we are doing when we are showing God that our hands are empty, we are saying, God, I need you. I will praise you. I will trust you. I will be satisfied with you. Verse 5, I will be satisfied with the richest of foods. In the Hebrew, it literally means, I will be satisfied with marrow and fat The best bits in the meal. Now, let me ask you another question. How many of you cut your fat off your food before you eat it? You do not know what you were missing. The best bit is the fat, and I can testify. But in those days, that was the banquet. The feasts of Israel, it was, the best bit was reserved and it was so tasty. And this is what David is picturing in verse five, a real banquet, a really splendid meal. And he uses it to describe the Christian life, someone who desires to be feasting on the living God. And I know for many of us, for many of us, we are culturally very British, very reserved, awkward, don't know whether we're supposed to do this or not, but if you look at even today how Jewish people celebrate, they do it in real style. The rabbis, the teachers, they would dance at weddings, and it is very, very special. And you can see them online on YouTube. They're so amazing. And maybe Joseph and I might present it to you at the next members' meeting, we'll see. But Jewish people, the Old Testament Israelites, they really knew how to celebrate. And it's awesome. The Feasts of Israel, they were times of great joy. And it's a picture of what it means to be a Christian today. Someone who desires and delights in God. Someone who enjoys God. You know, this idea, I don't know if you've come across this, this idea of being a Christian, someone who is very solemn, very serious, very long-faced and unhappy. Lord, I am a blessed worm. Step on me and watch me squirm. That ain't the Christian life according to Psalm 63, is it? It's feasting in God. It's enjoying God, even through times of darkness and difficulty. That's what it's supposed to be like. And when we come to the Lord's table, which we will be doing later on this evening, we are anticipating that heavenly feast, which will be totally and absolutely glorious. Better than any summer barbecue, however late it is, or any Christmas meal, whatever your favorite dinner is in the, in the year. You, God, says David, are my desire. You are my delight. I take refuge in you. But secondly, verses 6 to 11, you are also my defense. Here's a um, point two on your handout if you're following the outline. God is my defense, verses 6 to 11. David now turns his heart towards God, and as God's king, David is confident that God will defend him. And again, he makes a number of statements. He meditates in the darkness. Have a look down at verse 6, or have a listen. Verse 6. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. I mean, the worst time is at night, isn't it? When you wake up and you just can't go back to sleep. And you're full of fears. Things seem to magnify at night, don't they? And I'm sure it was worse for for King David in this situation. Remember, he's in the wilderness. And he's surrounded by his enemies. He's on a floor instead of a feather bed. And he keeps tossing and turning, you can imagine. And you look and you hear a noise. Is that someone coming out to spy on me? Is that someone trying to kill me? someone trying to suss me out? Now, what does he do? What does he do? He thinks of who God is. We've seen this already, and he does it again. Now, normally, I must confess, I am a really good sleeper, a really bad snorer, and my wife is a big, big kicker. But occasionally, I have a really bad night, and I cannot go back to sleep. It is rare, but it sometimes happens, which means I just don't know what to do to knock myself back out. But in more recent months, when this has happened, I started going through the ABC of God. In other words, think of the alphabet and go through a characteristic of God for each letter. So, A for Almighty, B for Boundless, C for Compassionate, D for Deliverer, E for Everlasting. I told someone this the other day, actually, and they asked me, Ian, what do you do when you get as far as Q? And I said to them, well, I never got as far as Q because I'm fall to sleep when I get to Q. If you can think of someone, something that describes the characteristic of God that begins with Q, come and tell me afterwards. But can you see what David is doing here? He, he meditates, he contemplates, he chews over in the darkness the character of God. And he sings in the shadows. Have a look down, listen to verse, verse seven. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I can rejoice that I am near to God. You see, the picture here in verse 7, it's of a little chick, isn't it? And of its mother hen with a baby on her. And the baby is safe and secure because mother hen is there. It can feel the warmth of its mother's hen's body. I sing in the shadow of your wings, says David. I remember seeing once on TV um, a plane being hijacked. Uh, the plane had landed and the passengers were trapped in, and they were held hostage for three days. And eventually they did come out safely, and you see those people, and yes, they might be safe, but boy, they look so stressed. You can imagine, can't you? Your life has been in danger for three days. They're all coming down the stairs. Some are weeping and crying. Some are just very, very, very anxious. Except for one. Except for one person, there's this little baby in her mother's arms. And the baby, as far as I could tell, was fast asleep because she is not aware of what's been going on. Sure, her mother might have been stressed, but she hasn't communicated that to her. The baby is completely at peace because all that I want is my mum. and mummy is there, and so the world is okay. And David is saying... Everything might be falling apart around me, but God is my defense. I am in the shadow of his wings. And so if you are a Christian here tonight, then be reassured, this is where you are. You are in the shadow of God's wings. What a wonderful thought. What a wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? And because of that, David says, I will trust God in trials. Verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. I cling to you. I hold on. The word cling here, verse 8, it carries a sense of desperation, doesn't it? When I feel weak, I just hold on to God. And that is all good. That is all good. But notice how verse 8 continues. Your right hand upholds me. In other words, I might be clinging, but his hand is grasping the grasp of God's grace. It reminds me of a song that uh, we often sing in churches uh, in most recent years, and I'm going to be singing it later tonight. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Saviour loves me so, He will hold me fast. Listen, whatever you are going through today, whatever trials you are facing, God is grasping you. You might be thinking, I just can't hold on much longer. It's difficult being a Christian. It's difficult following the Lord Jesus. Listen, he will never, ever let you go. He grasps you by his grace. And so with that in mind, just see the confidence of David as we as we close tonight. Have a look down at verses 9, 10, and 11. David, he is absolutely confident that his enemies will be destroyed. Verse 9, those who want to kill me will be destroyed. And David is confident that God will restore him. Verse 11, see, the king, it will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. It's important to know this. This psalm, it is not saying that God will rescue us from all of our troubles. For this life. David is the king here and he knows that he is going to go back on his throne because God has promised it to him. The Bible you see is a very, very honest book. Sometimes we do, as Christians, have to go through terrible trials. Sometimes it seems as though evil has prevailed. Just think of everything that has been happening in Ukraine over the last few months. And it's still going. Oh, think about those Christians who have been persecuted in all over the world for their faith in places like North Korea. It can seem at times as though God has lost the plot and he has failed his people. But the message of the Bible is, is that ultimately God will win. He will be victorious. You see, the Bible is a very, very honest book. But it's also a very hopeful book. In the end, God's king will prevail. And the king referred to in verse 11, it's not just King David, it's also the king who came after David. It's the king of kings, it's the king who sang all of these psalms. It's the greatest king of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day he will prevail, and he will conquer all of his enemies for good. And he will bring about a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Evil is doomed. And Jesus will be glorified. And we, if we call ourselves Christians here tonight, we are his people. A people of hope this evening. And so as we come to the Lord's table in just a few moments, it's with that great same hope. That same glorious hope. So, what do we do when we go through times of great stress and anxiety or know others around us who are going through those situations? What can we learn from Psalm 63? Well, firstly... God is still my desire. Do we make people too big and God too small? Or are we coming first and foremost into the presence of the living God for help? And secondly, God is our defense. Whatever we are going through, if we cling on to him, we can be sure he continues to hold us fast. We can be absolutely sure whatever we go through as individual believers or as a church family, if we continue to cling on to the Lord Jesus through times of uncertainty and worry, he will continue to hold us fast because he loves us that much. What a wonderful God that we have. Amen. We're going to sing...